is Read Japanese Literature, a podcast about Japanese fiction and some of its most important and interesting works. My name is Allison Fincher. We're starting out with some of the oldest works in Japanese literature. All the works we read and discuss are available in translation, so you can read along if you want. And today we're talking about early modern Japanese literature. You may have noticed that today's episode is marked mature. I'm not going to be any more explicit than the texts we're talking about. It's just that the texts we're talking about today are full of mostly consensual sex. So we'll be looking at a couple of important questions. How does this fleeting world transform from a Buddhist precept to a name for the red light district? What did reading look like in early modern Japan? And how many dildos does a man really need to pack for a trip to the island of women? The Life of an Amorous Man is one of the most enduring works of early modern Japanese literature. At the end of the book, the hero decides the only thing left to do is to sail off in search of the legendary island of women. He gathers together seven drinking buddies and makes a boat out of mementos from past love affairs. Here are just a few of the things these eight gentlemen packed. 20 crates of women delighter pills, 250 pairs of metal masturbation balls for women, 7,000 dried taro stalks to be soaked in warm water and used by pairs of women, 600 latticed penis attachments, 2,550 water buffalo horn dildos, 3,500 tin dildos, 800 leather dildos, 200 erotic prints, 100 pairs of underwear, and 900 bales of tissue paper for post-cloidal cleanup. The hero's encouraging words to the men on his ship are, you may exhaust your vital fluids, and you may get yourself buried there, but, well, what of it? Really, what more could you ask for? So how did we get from the valiant Yoshitsune of ballad and no drama to this? Before we get into that radical cultural shift, we need to quickly discuss the massive political changes in Japan during the 16th century, when the centuries of instability that we've been talking about for several episodes finally come to a close. During the second half of the 16th century, the warlord Oda Nobunaga began the painstaking process of reunifying Japan. When one retainer, betrayed and assassinated Nobunaga, a different retainer named Toyotomi Hideyoshi stepped into the power vacuum. Hideyoshi implemented some major cultural reforms. After Hideyoshi died in 1598, a former ally, Tokugawa Ieyasu, won a decisive victory over his rivals at the Battle of Sekigahara in 1600. And the Battle of Sekigahara marks the beginning of the period known as the Tokugawa period. This is the period when Japan was under the control of the Tokugawa shogunate. And sometimes people use the term Edo period after 
the major city, Edo, which today is Tokyo. I'll be using the term Edo period. Under the Tokugawa shogunate, Japan enjoyed 250 years of peace. One of Tokugawa's most important policy changes was the 1693 adoption of a new isolationist policy. The policy is called Sakoku, or closed country, and it more or less cut Japan off from the rest of the world until the 1860s. So this historical overview has been a massive oversimplification, and if it's a period of Japanese history you want to know more about, I strongly recommend Isaac Meyer's History of Japan podcast, especially episodes 8 and 9, and you can find the link to those at readjapaneseliterature.com. In addition to this major political revolution, there's also a major cultural revolution in Edo, Japan, linked to the rise of printing. Koreans had been using movable type printing presses for centuries. And when Europeans came to Japan in the late 1500s, they too brought movable type technology with them. But movable type isn't really that practical for writing Japanese because Japanese is a complicated mix of syllabaries and Chinese characters. As literacy rose and the demand for written books increased, Japanese publishers turned to multiple-use woodblock prints instead. By the 1660s, major publishing houses in Japan's largest cities were releasing pre-modern Japanese texts like the Tale of Genji, like the Tale of the Heike, but also new fiction, dictionaries, even calendars. And by the 19th century, books seemed to have been cheaper and more accessible than books in contemporary Europe. The Japanese could buy or rent books from publishers and the booksellers. They could buy them from secondhand shops. And there were even street peddlers who walked around selling books. Another idiosyncrasy of early Japanese print culture is how many of these books are illustrated. Woodblock printing makes printing pictures alongside the text pretty simple. And so these illustrations augmented the text and made it more interesting. It's important to note that printing didn't restart Japanese literature from scratch. As I mentioned a minute ago, the text that followed the advent of printing clearly repeated as well as evolved a lot of what came before. Many popular printed books in the Edo period were just printed versions of older books with roots in oral or manuscript culture, like the tale of the Heike, like the tale of Genji. Scholars have tended to divide Edo period literature and culture into two starkly different categories that weren't really supposed to overlap, high culture and low culture. High culture was also called ushin or ga. This is the refined literature that Japanese people had been reading for centuries, especially literature that came from or was inspired by China. And this refined literary tradition became even more 
Sinophilic, Chinese loving. High literature was consumed almost exclusively in the classical Chinese language and the classical Japanese language. The focus continued to be on more refined topics that were deemed to be more appropriate for the aristocratic class. It's also worth noting that the self-conscious study of Japanese literature, Japanese literary studies, began in Japan during the Edo period. It's part of this high culture movement. But today we're talking about low culture, or zoku, especially in the form of yukio zoshi, or books of the floating world. Books of the floating world are one of the most popular genres of fiction prose for at least a hundred year span covering most of the Edo period. I should note here that some, especially modern scholars, question the use of the term yukio zoshi because readers and writers at the time didn't tend to use it. I'm going to use that term now because it's the most widely accepted way to talk about the works I want to discuss. You may recall from earlier episodes the Buddhist concept of the floating world or the fleeting world. The world is an illusion. Everything will pass away. The tale of the Heike begins with a famous reflection on that idea. The Jetavana temple bells rings the passing of all things. Twinned saw trees, white and full flower, declare the great man's certain fall. The arrogant do not long endure. They are like a dream one night in spring. The bold and brave perish in the end. They are as dust before the wind. During the centuries of war between the end of the tale of the Heike and the establishment of the Tokugawa shogunate, it was pretty easy to remember that things weren't going to last. But as peace brought stability and economic prosperity, at least to some people, the idea that the world was fleeting was a little less believable. And so the meaning of yukio, floating or fleeting, began to shift. We can see that shift in the preface of a book called Tales of the Floating World, first published in 1666. The preface is a debate between two people, one man with an older, darker, more medieval understanding of this floating world, and the narrator of the Tales of the Floating World, who takes a lighter, more optimistic, and more contemporary view. The first man says to the narrator, It seems that they call this a yukio, because in all things nothing can be fulfilled, nothing goes as you want it to go. So here we hear again that older, more Buddhist understanding of yukio, or that floating world. The narrator, though, responds, No, that's not the meaning of it at all. Fretting just causes indigestion. So cross each bridge as you come to it, gaze at the moon, the snow, the cherry blossoms, and the bright autumn leaves, recite poems, drink sake, and make merry. Floating along with an unsinkable disposition, like a gourd bobbing along with the current, this is what we call yukio. The narrator then tells us the story of Hyotaro, a man who squanders his fortune with gambling and prostitutes. Now, sex workers are central to the low literature of Edo Japan. And so I'd like to talk about that history for just a minute. 
In the 1640s, the government of Tokugawa, Japan, tried to bring the decadence of sex workers, theaters, and the people who patronized them under control. It forced these shady ventures into dedicated city districts called licensed quarters. Predictably, this backfired. The licensed quarters didn't curb the decadence. Instead, they became centers of entertainment in early modern Japan. Many of the women in these licensed quarters weren't primarily sex workers. They were highly skilled entertainers in their own rights. And I should note here that the most famous of these women in the Anglo imagination are geisha. Geisha sometimes slept with their clients, but they were not and are not prostitutes. First and foremost, they have been performers. Men generally accessed these women by traveling to a tea house or performance house in the licensed quarter. And of course, there were also unlicensed prostitutes, not specifically connected to the licensed quarters and strict hierarchies. One more note. I'm focusing on male-female sexual encounters today, but there is also a strong and important tradition of male-male love in literature from Edo, Japan. Male-male love was widely accepted in early modern Japan. Uh, One listener has asked about possible homoerotic overtones to the relationship between Yoshitsune and Benkei from episode 4. I don't think I can do this topic justice now, so it's a literature I would like to return to later. Over time, low literature came to be associated with humor, vulgar topics, and the theater and licensed pleasure quarters. But they were also everyday slice-of-life situations that other contemporary fiction simply didn't provide. And a lot of the popular literature of Edo Japan intentionally parodies or creates satire from high culture, its books, and the things that make it high culture. So who were Edo period readers and who was writing for them? It's difficult to make historical guesses about literacy, but here are some commonly held assumptions. By the end of the 17th century, virtually all samurai men could read and write. Among commoners, economic developments gave the advantage to people who could read, write, and do basic math. By the middle of the 17th century, most middle and upper class commoners were literate, at least in cities. By the end of the Edo period in the 19th century, it seems likely that more Japanese had some level of literacy than their counterparts in Europe did, at least in cities. The people who could read often carried books around with them. One of my favorite descriptions comes from Lev Meknikov, a Russian political exile who lived in Japan during the 1870s. He related that few are the common laborers, grooms, or rickshaw men who do not hide in their underwear or belts some work of light literature. But in addition to the large number of readers, we also know that many people were still consuming literature orally. We'll talk a little bit more about the man who wrote the excerpt we opened with in just a minute, 
But one of his friends read an excerpt from The Life of a Sensuous Man to someone he called a farming woman. And he tells the story that when I read some of it out loud to her, she came running up from her patty to hear more, her rice patty. She laughed so hard and long, especially at the sexy parts, that she forgot everything and dropped the hoe on her shoulder. Where do women fit into this picture of literacy? Some scholars believe that literacy rates for women weren't very high. Others think that literacy among women was fairly widespread, again, especially in cities. Certainly by the 19th century, many performing women and higher-class sex workers could read and write. It was an important part of the trade to be able to exchange love letters. Who was writing for all these readers? It's a common misconception that commoners became the major producers of culture during the early modern period. But an overwhelming number of authors came from the samurai class, usually from samurai families in severe decline. But some of the most original writers, including the poet Basho, are important exceptions. Another important exception is Ihara Saikaku, who's regarded as the greatest innovator of early modern Japanese prose. His works dominated vernacular fiction for almost a century, and today he is widely considered the greatest fiction writer of the Edo period. His works have also influenced many Japanese writers of many genres. As a young man, Saikaku abandoned his family's mid-sized merchant firm to become a poet and then a prose writer. When he was 34, Saikaku's beloved wife died, and as a memorial, he spent 12 hours writing a thousand-verse poetic requiem. That's about one verse every 40 seconds. He also began to publish vernacular fiction, most famously the text we opened with, The Life of a Sensuous Man. You might also see this text published as Life of an Amorous Man, the word in the Japanese title, koshoku, can refer to almost all modes of bodily desire, beauty, romance, sensuality, sex. Even though the excerpt we started with was pretty comic, the life of a sensuous man isn't merely a frivolous body text. It's also full of complicated numerology, coded references to Saikaku's life and the life of his wife, parallels to the tale of Genji and the tales of Issei. The tales of Issei is another important work from Heian, Japan. And the life of a sensuous man is also full of allusions to the Japanese literature that came before it. The life of a sensuous man was first published in 1682. It's about Yonosuke, literally man of the world. And Yonosuke is the son of a well-to-do Osaka merchant and a high-ranking courtesan. A precocious youth, he begins to lust after the women in his life when he's only seven. In the first half of the narrative, his father renounces him for his frivolous ways. He keeps seeking sexual pleasure anyway, though his lack of funds gets him into frequent trouble. He also meets his greatest love, a woman named Yoshino. Yoshino was a very high-class sex worker, and her list of talents tells us a lot about what was expected of women in her social position. 
She could sing, play the koto, recite poetry, perform the tea ceremony, arrange flowers, adjust weights and a mechanical clock, fix women's hair, play the Chinese board game Go, tell Buddhist stories, and balance household accounts. At the midway point in the life of a sensuous man, Yonosuke almost dies in a shipwreck. When he wakes up, he discovers that his father has died, and he has come into a massive inheritance. With that money, he continues his dissolute life. At several points during his life, he expresses contrition, but it never lasts for long, and he never mends his ways. By the time he is 54, the narrator tells us Yonosuke has slept with 3,742 women and 725 men. And by the time he is 60, his body is, quote, worn down by love and, quote, nothing holds his mind any longer in the impermanent floating world. We've already seen how the book ends, with Yonosuke sailing off in search of the legendary island of women. Saikaku's career includes other poetry and prose narratives as well, and it spans another important cultural shift in the literature available to Edo period readers. In 1686, the government intensified its campaign of censorship against political and morally problematic books. The Tokugawa government had one of the most effective information networks in the contemporary world, and it never stopped refining what people could and could not print. Should a printer disobey, the consequences could be deadly. In fact, the Tokugawa shogunate seems to have had mixed feelings about books in general. In 1790, one government official wrote, Books have long been published. No more are necessary, so there ought to be no more new books. Two of the most heavily censored topics were contemporary politics and content that might corrupt public morals. Given the new levels of censorship and their focus, it isn't surprising that Saikaku's topics changed toward the end of his career. One of his first post-1686 works was a book called Tales of Samurai Duty. It's an homage intended for the commoner class, about the virtues of the samurai. So it's celebrating the samurai, but not to the samurai. It's intended to instill a kind of awe or respect or reverence among the common people. One chapter opens, Although all human beings are allotted a fixed span of life, the code of the samurai requires them to die, if necessary, before their time to preserve their honor. As a matter of fact, sometimes the virtues that we as 21st century readers most link with samurai come from these kind of texts rather than from samurai themselves. Saikaku also wrote collections of stories that demonstrated virtues for the merchant class, ingenuity, thrift, diligence, and honesty. And these stories give modern audiences pretty interesting glimpse into what life was like for ordinary people in Edo, Japan. So, why are we still reading early modern Japanese literature? 
19th and 20th century scholars used to comb the literature of this period looking for the first novel. But that's not really a great reason to read these texts. Instead, we read them because they're some of the oldest depictions of daily life in Japan. They are sometimes sophisticated examples of the evolution of Japanese literature. And they are also sometimes just good body fun. If you want to read along with us, the translations I've been using are from the anthology Early Modern Japanese Literature, edited by Haruo Shirane. You can visit readjapaneseliterature.com to a link for the book on bookshop.org. Buy your books there to support the podcast. And on our website, you can also find a link to the Freer and Sackler Gallery's catalog of early modern printed books. That's a great way to see how the kind of illustrations we talked about today are a part of early modern printed material. Next time, Japan opens to the West and begins the process of rapid modernization. We'll be talking about how ghost stories serve to preserve older Japanese culture. We'll take a look at the evolution of Japanese ghost stories from medieval setsuwa to early modern printed books like we discussed today, to the work of the great collector of Japanese stories, Lafcadio Hearn. If you want to offer feedback or suggestions, maybe ask a question you'd like us to answer in the podcast, you can tweet us at at readjapaneselit. A special thank you to Adam Sola for production assistance. Thank you to the Japanese Literature Twitter community and the Japanese Literature Group on Facebook, especially to Dr. Lucy North for her help with sources for today's episode. And thank you to producer Kaim for today's music at Kaim Music and KaimMusic.com. <laughs>